Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 271. It's titled, Financial Independence is a Choice. Two friends of mine recently released books on the path to achieving financial independence. Rob Berger published Retire Before Mom and Dad, the simple numbers behind a lifetime of financial freedom. Chris Mamula, along with his co-authors Brad Barrett and Jonathan Mendoza, published Choose FI, Your Blueprint to Financial Independence. The books describe the different choices, paths, numbers, and stories behind achieving financial freedom. They're very well done. Mamula wrote in Choose FI, This book is called Choose FI. It would be easy to focus on FI, financial independence, and classify this as a personal finance book. But don't overlook the word choose. This is a book about making choices. Financial independence is a choice. I chose eight years ago, just about this week, to quit my job and declare myself financially independent. But I realized I made that choice many years earlier. When I first joined my investment advisory firm, we were in a, might have been a 30-story building in downtown Cincinnati. We were probably on the 18th or 19th floor. And much of the building was occupied by individuals who worked for banks. As I rode the elevator with these workers, many of them complained about their jobs. And a number of them were in their 40s or 50s and just were frustrated and couldn't get out of their situation. I made that choice just observing them, and at the time I was 30, that I didn't want to be in that situation 20 years down the road, where I felt stuck, that I was so dependent on the income from my job that I couldn't quit. I made that choice again about five to seven years later when I was in the crown room at Delta at the Dallas airport. And I saw all these salespeople on their phones making calls. The flights were delayed. We weren't able to leave. And I just thought, I do not want to be traveling 10 years down the road like I'm doing today. What I was trying to protect myself against was financial vulnerability. There's a study by three Italians, Luisa Adorloni, Manuel Bacciocci and Daniela Vandone. It was titled Household Financial Vulnerability and Empirical Analysis. Typically, when we think of individuals who are financially fragile, it's because of their loan commitments. They have too much debt, and so they could be hit, as they point out, by adverse income shocks. They write, we define these households as financially vulnerable since they are particularly exposed to adverse shocks, such as a job loss, reduction in working hours, death, 
illness that can eliminate or reduce an income source and or determine unexpected liabilities and negatively impact their financial situation. So they believe being financially vulnerable is more than just an overcommitment due to excess indebtedness. But you can look at the inability of households in terms of balancing their budget or if they fall behind in their utility bills or just difficulties in shopping for food or paying rent. So when I say I made a choice to eliminate financial vulnerability, I I was no way in the situation for those that are essentially financially fragile. It was more the freedom. How can I arrange my life so I'm not in a position when I'm in my 40s or 50s or 60s where I'm dependent on someone else for my primary source of income? Jason Vitug, who wrote You Only Live Once, The Roadmap to Financial Wellness and a Purposeful Life, tweeted the other day, quote, a friend said financial independence means making bank to cover living expenses without being dependent on a job, but there's still dependence on a source of money. So it's independence from a job, not necessarily independence from finances. Then he asked, can we be financially independent if we're dependent on market gains and dividend payouts as the sole source of income? Mamula's book, Choose FI, mentions two paths for financial independence. One is a simple path, which is saving a large percentage of your income and investing it primarily in stocks so that you have a large enough portfolio to live on. The second path is an active path where you build your own business, perhaps including real estate, and so you're not entirely dependent on your investments. Of the first path, the simple path, Mamula writes, another challenge is the lack of control over investment performance. The beauty of the simple path lies in its simplicity. But the flip side is it requires you to accept the returns the market provides and trust that your assumptions based on the past will be true in the future. You are relying on markets to perform while you have no control over that performance. In a worst-case scenario, future returns will not match past returns. Even in a best-case scenario, it's unrealistic to assume returns will exceed the past. I believe for true financial independence, we can't be entirely dependent on the returns of the stock market. Now, you could depend entirely on your investment returns if you could live just on the income component. If you could live just on dividends, then that's way more predictable than being dependent on capital gains. But most are not able to live just on the interest income and the dividends, especially with interest rates so low and dividend yields so low. So they're dependent on the capital gains. And that's critical if you're assuming those capital gains will be the same in the future as they have in the past. Rob Berger, in his book, based the numbers on earning 9.3% nominal on one's investment portfolio. Why 9.3%, he writes? The number comes from Vanguard, a mutual fund company. According to Vanguard, from 1926 to 2017, an investment portfolio of 70% stocks and 30% bonds has returned, on average, 9.3% a year. There are three important takeaways. He writes, first, I didn't just make up the number. 
Second, a portfolio of 70, 30 stocks to bonds is a reasonable investing approach. And third, just because this portfolio has returned 9.3% since 1926, doesn't mean it will return 9.3% in the future. Keep in mind, he writes, that there are no guarantees. I'm using these numbers based on how the markets and inflation have behaved since 1926. How they will behave in the future is anybody's guess. I actually think we don't need to guess what market returns will be in the future. We can make an educated assumption based on the math of what drives investment returns. In my upcoming book, Chapter 3, the third question is, what is the upside? And I systematically go through the math in order to estimate the returns of stocks, bonds, and other asset classes. To estimate the returns of asset classes, we need to look at first the cash flow in terms of dividends, interest, and rent. That is a primary driver of returns. The second, for those asset classes that have cash flow growth, such as stocks and real estate, we want to know what's the assumption there? What have they done historically in terms of earnings growth for stocks? Is that a reasonable assumption going forward? And the third component is what are investors willing to pay in the future for that cash flow compared to today? That is what's going to determine the returns for stocks and bonds going forward. We know a 70-30 portfolio, and now Vanguard shows through 2018, a 70-30 portfolio has returned 9.1%. They have some model portfolios. I'll link to them in the show notes. And you can see the historical returns. For example, that 70-30 portfolio through 2018, the average annual return is now down to 9.1%. The best year was 1933 at 41.1%. The worst year was negative 30.7%. And 23 out of 93 years, the investor lost money. Now, when I look at returns like that, I go straight to the footnotes to see What comprised those returns? For the U.S. stock market, it was the S&P 90 from 1926 through March 1957. Then it was the S&P 500 index from 1957 to 1974. It was the Wilshire 5000 index, where they added small cap and mid cap stocks from 1975 to 2005. And then it was the MSCI U.S. broad market index from 2005 to 2013, and after that, it was the CRISP, CRSP, U.S. Total Market Index. Vanguard kept changing the index as they changed the benchmark they used, to some extent, to invest their Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. Now, going forward, it's essentially the entire U.S. stock market, based on the CRISP data, and that's what we should use as we're looking forward for our expectations. In terms of bonds, it was the Standard & Poor's high-grade corporate index from 1926 to 1968. Then it was the Citigroup high-grade index from 69 to 72, followed by the Lehman Brothers U.S. Long Credit AA index from 73 to 75. Then the Barclays Capital U.S. Aggregate Bond Index from 1976 to 2009, at which point it was the Barclays U.S. Aggregate Float Adjusted Bond Index thereafter. Essentially, the broad 
U.S. bond market. So that index changed a lot also. But here's the point. A 100% bond portfolio, according to that index, they described the, the U.S. bond market returns from 1926 through 2018 returned 5.3% annualized. 5.3%. If you've listened to this show long enough, you know that the best estimate of bond returns going forward is the current yield to maturity, which is also the SEC yield if you're a U.S. investor, which takes that yield to maturity and backs out the expense ratio. The SEC yield on the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund is 2.16%. That is the assumption that we should use to estimate our forward-looking bond returns. If interest rates go up, the value of that bond fund will go down and then they'll be reinvesting at those higher interest rates. If interest rates fall and the value of bonds go up, then the bond fund will be reinvesting at those lower interest rates. And the math works out that over long periods of time, 10 years or more, the annualized return will be that starting yield to maturity, in this case, 2.2%. Here's the thing then. In order to get a 9.3% return on a 70% stock, 30% bond portfolio, if bonds are only going to return 2.16%, then the stock component needs to return 12.3% annualized. What are the dividend yields for stocks right now? Well, if we back out the expense ratio, the dividend yield on the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund is 1.88%. In order to generate a 12.3% return, if we assume no change in valuations, investors are going to pay the same amount in terms of the price-to-earnings ratio for stocks 10, 15, 20 years from now as they do today, then earnings need to grow at 10.4% a year because the stock return is going to be the dividend yield plus the earnings growth because dividends typically grow at the same rate of earnings. That's the math. Is a 10.4% earnings growth assumption reasonable? Well, the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, its earnings growth has been 10.8% over the past five years. So it has accomplished that. But historically, as we go back and look at that data, because we've been in a great boom for earnings recently, earnings per share, not overall aggregate earnings, but earnings per share is what drives the returns of the stock market. U.S. earnings per share have only grown greater than 10% for two years in a row, only 15 times since 1960. And that's usually following a period of negative returns. In other words, the expectation that earnings will grow 10% or more, that's an aggressive expectation. Ned Davis Research, they did a regression analysis because the way that earnings work is you have positive years where they can be very high, greater than 10%. Then you'll have years where you have negative earnings or earnings well below 10%. But if we do a regression analysis, do a regression line and see, well, what have earnings generally been on an average basis since 1980? That regression line shows that large company stock earnings have increased 5.4% per year. And small company stock earnings have increased 5.3%. That's a reasonable assumption. Around 5.4% 
for earnings, recognizing that they're volatile, that there'll be times when it's greater than 10%, but that's a reasonable assumption. Now we can say, well, they've been much higher than that the past five years, and companies are buying back more stock, and that's helping earnings per share increase more than it has historically. That's true. We also have to recognize, though, that companies have taken on much greater debt in order to buy back the stock. Long-term debt for the companies that comprise the S&P 500 index is $7 trillion, an all-time high. The interest expense per year for these S&P 500 companies is at a 10-year high, even though we're at very low interest rates. It's going to be difficult for companies to continue to borrow money and buy back their stock with the proceeds. If we look at the gap between earnings and earnings per share, it's 2.8%. So earnings per share is higher than overall earnings. And that gap, it's its second largest on record just behind 2016, and this goes back to 1974. In other words, the quality of earnings per share is weakening. Companies are boosting earnings per share through buybacks, but their ability to do so is going to be more difficult if they can't actually grow revenue and overall earnings. Ned Davis Research, in a paper on the quality of earnings, says the warnings do suggest that earnings quality is among the lowest of the expansion and is consistent with late-cycle behavior by management teams. When economic growth falters, the magnitude of the earnings decline should be greater than it would be otherwise, especially if companies are forced to curtail buybacks and deal with wider credit spreads. In other words, higher borrowing cost. Assuming earnings are going to come in greater than 10%, and that combined with dividends to get to a 12% return just isn't reasonable. The data doesn't support it. The math doesn't support it. How would our portfolio grow if we're saving for retirement, if we're trying to be financially independent? What assumptions should we use, and how can that impact how much money we accumulate? Before we answer that, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. 
But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. One of the strengths of Berger's book is he really emphasizes the importance of compounding, and he gives numerical examples. In his chapter called The Money Multiplier, he shows that by investing $208 a month for 45 years at a 9.3% return, that the portfolio at the end would have 1,708,000. But he also shows that if we lower that 9.3% return by 1% down to an 8.3% return that the portfolio, what he calls the Freedom Fund, is lowered down to $1.2 million, a loss of just under $500,000. Now, it's not really a loss, but he writes the rate of return on our investments matters a lot. And seemingly small changes multiplied over time will have a huge life-changing effect on our Freedom Fund. This is crucial because we can understand the math of investing. We can have reasonable return assumptions. A reasonable assumption for bonds, U.S. bonds, is 2.16%. A reasonable expectation for stocks, assuming the dividend yield is 2%, really 1.9% once we back out the fees on that Vanguard fund, if we assume 5.4% earnings growth, that's an expected return for stocks of 7.32%. 1.9% dividend yield, 5.4% earnings growth. Assuming no changes to valuation, the price-to-earnings ratio of the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund is 20. We'll assume it'll be 20 10 years from now for 20 years from now, so the returns will be driven by the dividend yields and the earnings growth. With a return expectation for stocks of 7.3%, and 2.2% for bonds, a 70-30 portfolio has an expected return of 5.8%. If you invest $208 a month for 45 years and earn 5.8%, your Freedom Fund at the end of 45 years would only be $539,000. To be even more specific, and I checked the math, $538,525.70. $538,525.70. million less than had you earned 9.3% annualized. Why does this matter? Because it should influence the path you choose 
for financial independence. We should pursue what Mamula says is an active strategy. Creating a business, creating other sources of income so that you're not entirely dependent on your retirement portfolio. Now, for a traditional retirement, some retirees have a pension plan. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We have Social Security, but we're talking about early retirees where you're potentially very dependent on your investment portfolio. And given some reasonable return expectations, we need to create other sources of income. Both books talk about the 4% rule, and I won't go into that in this episode, but if returns are at the level that we've talked about, a 5.8% for a 70-30 portfolio, portfolios aren't going to last as long. And we went into that in detail in episode 250, and I mentioned the book Living Off Your Money, The Modern Mechanics of Investing During Retirement with Stocks and Bonds by Michael H. McClung. And I showed, and using some of his data, that the sustainable withdrawal rate very much depends on what the returns for investments are. If we use overall U.S. stock data going back to 1871, a sustainable rate could have been as low as 3.3%, not 4%. If we use U.K. data from 1923 to 2010, it was as low as 2.2%. The returns matter, and one of the key attributes of those that are financially independent or part of the FIRE community is their flexibility to be able to cut spending if returns aren't as high as expected and to be able to adapt it over time. We should use that same flexibility to create other sources of income so we can be truly financially independent and not financially vulnerable to 60% declines in the stock market or very low yields in terms of dividends and interest rates on stocks and bonds. Now, you might say, I'll never be financially independent. I'm just too far behind. That doesn't mean we can't take actions to move in that direction. I'm reading a book by Jonathan Safran Ford. It's called We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. And it has really caused me to think about how I eat. This book got me reading studies such as the recent release last month by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a report called Climate Change and Land. It was, as they describe it, a special report on climate change, desertification, land degradation, sustainable land management, food security, and greenhouse gas fluxes in terrestrial ecosystems. I also read a study by Jay Poor and T. Nemesek titled Reducing Foods Environmental Impacts Through Producers and Consumers. The studies were pretty clear that eating less animal products is a very good way that as individuals, we can do something to impact climate change. Now, that's not what this particular episode of the podcast is about. But what I found fascinating in this book was kind of an internal dialogue that for has with himself. His previous book was Eating Animals. He's a committed vegan, but he fails and he admits it. He will go to his hotel, order room service and eat a hamburger, but he struggles. And it's the same thing with perhaps we want to be 
financially independent, but we struggle. In the book, the question is asked, what is the opposite of someone who eats a lot of meat, dairy, and eggs? A vegan? No, the opposite of someone who eats a lot of animal products is someone who is attentive to how often he eats animals. For rights, of course I can eat fewer animal products. And of course, my fear of inconsistency doesn't have to stop me from trying. But I know what will happen. Time will pass. I'll lose my reference point, stop assessing my sacrifices on the scale of global calamity, and go back to comparing my life to itself. And no matter what I know and want, I'll find myself back where I started. I'm not sure I'll have the energy to sustain this for the rest of my life. It's just rowing. It's rowing against the current. I'm thinking about the thousands of breakfasts and lunches ahead of me, always having to give them thought, resist cravings, risk social tensions. He says he craves meat more now than he ever has. And he's been a vegan since he was eight. And he's like, well, what's the point? I'll never be able to do it. And then in this dialogue, he points out that his batting average of making the choice not to eat animal products is around 98%. But what he would like is just to put it to rest. Just like he's already made the decision not to murder people, steal, or litter. But veganism's been very, very difficult for him. It would be difficult for me, but I'm going to try. I have been vegan for a period of several years in the past, but I slipped. Something is uncertain if we cannot assign probabilities to it. If we're just not sure, we have high confidence of the conclusion, but we can't put probabilities to it. That's what uncertainty means. If we can assign probabilities to it, then that's something that we can measure the risk. Human-caused climate change is an uncertainty. We do not know what the ultimate impact will be. We have high confidence that it is human-caused. What is motivating me to change how I eat is what will my grandchildren say if I knew climate change was happening and I didn't take action in terms of changing how I live, changing how I eat. Four writes in his book, the only dichotomy that matters is between those who act and those who don't. Choosing financial independence is a choice. We take actions every day in terms of savings, in terms of how we invest, in terms of what we spend, if we're choosing FI. And sometimes we mess up and we start again. You start again, but you're not starting at the beginning. You're starting where you are. And you remind yourself again, these are my goals. These are my financial goals. This is how I want to live. And you start again. And for some, it's easy. For some, it's easy to save 50% of their income. For others that have student loans or other situations, it's not easy. It's a struggle. One day at a time. That's how we choose FI. That's how we decide what we eat what our view is on climate change and to act accordingly. That's episode 271. You can get show notes for this episode, including the links to the various books and articles I referenced at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide and I'll email those links to you 
each week, as well as a essay that I do on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to the email list. You can sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.